welcome to this 53rd episode of Physicians Weekly Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Rachel Giles, from Medicom Medical Publishers in collaboration with Physicians Weekly. Welcome to Physicians Weekly. Today's episode features two interviews. In our second interview, which is later in this episode, Physicians Weekly interviews our regular contributor, Dr. Medlaw, who's a certified radiologist in addition to being a medicine malpractice lawyer. She talks about the, quote, captain of the ship doctrine, end quote, which is a principle which holds a surgeon liable for the actions of assistants who are under the surgeon's control, but who are actually employees of the hospital, not the surgeon. The surgeon, as the captain of the ship, is directly responsible for an alleged error or act of alleged negligence because he or she controls and directs the actions of those in assistance. But Dr. Medlaw gives some really interesting examples to explain this principle. The Physicians Weekly Podcast provides thought leader insights on the latest medical news, clinical trial coverage, and advances in medicine and healthcare. But first, Physicians Weekly's Julia Ernst interviews Dr. Daniel Andrade, professor of neurology at the University of Toronto in Canada. Vaccination is a common seizure trigger in individuals with Dravet syndrome, which is a severe form of epilepsy characterized by frequent prolonged seizures, often triggered by hyperthermia or fever, and is often coupled with developmental delay, speech impairment, ataxia, hypotonia, sleep disturbances, and other health problems. Information surrounding COVID-19 vaccine side effects in patients with Dravet syndrome would aid caregivers and providers in decisions for and management of COVID-19 vaccination. To that end, Dr. Andrade led a recently published survey through the Dravet Syndrome Foundation's Family Network to find out whether patients or caregivers with Dravet syndrome had significant problems if they had received a COVID-19 vaccination. Stay tuned to find out. Enjoy listening. Hi, I'm here with Dr. Danielle Andrade from the University of Toronto to discuss her study about epilepsy. So Dr. Andrade, I wanted to start with the first question I sent you, which was what makes it important to study COVID-19 vaccination in patients who have Dravet syndrome? What needs were there for your research? So there are two important factors. One is that we know that patients with neurological problems can have worse COVID manifestations. So they might have worse complications than people that do not have an underlying neurological problem. So this would be one of the reasons. The second reason is because Dravet syndrome is a genetic disease where seizures can be triggered by fever and by vaccines. So, in fact, it's a very interesting story because uh, until several years ago, people thought that vaccines were causing the seizures and then the developmental abnormality that is seen in patients with Dravet syndrome. Until the gene causing Dravet syndrome was discovered, and then it was clear that those patients that had what we used to call vaccination encephalopathy, in fact, they had Dravet syndrome. And now we know of other genetic diseases that have the same profile. So the patient has the abnormal gene. And once they get the vaccine or they get a fever because they have a ear infection, or usually there's something that triggers fever that will cause the seizures. And uh, But now we know that 
the, it's not the vaccine causing the seizures. They have a genetic abnormality. So the fact that in many patients with Dravet syndrome, the first seizure came around the time of vaccination. We know that parents might be a bit more concerned about vaccinating their children. So we really wanted to know what is the real world experience with the vaccine, the COVID vaccine, because it's a new virus. We weren't sure how bad it could affect patients with Dravet syndrome. So that's why we decided to study and uh, talk to caregivers of patients with Dravet syndrome and understand whether or not they had vaccinated their children or adults with Dravet and the outcome of the vaccine. Can you explain what you set out to determine specifically and how you conducted your study? Sure. So the way we did the study, we developed questionnaire. And when I say we, is a group of Dravet specialists who are part of the Dravet Syndrome Foundation, and we are part of their medical advisory board. So together we developed a set of questions to understand if the caregivers had chosen to vaccinate, if not, why not? And for those that did give the vaccine to their children or adult patients, what was the outcome of the vaccine? What were the side effects that the patient had? And then we had a list of symptoms like fever, pain, seizures, epilepticus, and, and a lot of other things. So the questionnaire was available to the Dravet syndrome parent and caregiver website from May to August of 2021. And it was a volunteer and anonymous survey. So what specific findings from your study do you feel are important to emphasize? Specifically, what I found interesting was the low rate of seizure frequency that you saw among vaccinated individuals, as well as the fears about an increased potential for seizures among those who were not vaccinated. Yes. So we had 278 people who responded to the survey. Out of this, 120 had their loved one with Dravet syndrome vaccinated. Remember, when we were doing the survey, vaccine was available only to those that were 12 years and older. So we don't have data on the younger population. Out of this 120 patients that were vaccinated, 50% had absolutely no side effects. And the other 50% had some form of side effects, usually fever, pain, lightheadedness, but only 13% of those had an increase in seizure activity. Now, remember, these are patients that usually have several seizures per week. So what we saw in the 13% is an increase from their baseline. So one thing that is important is that 13% is a very small number for a population that is known to have fever-induced seizure. And the second important thing is that none of these patients went into status epilepticus. So that is very, very important. And that was definitely one of the fears of caregivers. Uh, about the unvaccinated patients, there were 158 121 at the time were unelegible, so they were younger than 12 years. 
and half, 60% of the caregivers of these younger patients said they would not vaccinate and 61% said they would vaccinate once it was available for their children's age group. So then I wanted to ask you also about one of your figures that you had in the study. So specifically in figure one, parts B and C look at patient reported symptoms following COVID vaccination, as well as the time frame in which those symptoms occurred. What would you say are the key takeaways from that figure? So I think the one important thing is that 50% had no side effects. In fact, with the first dose, it was 55% who had no side effects. With the second dose, 50%. The second important takeaway point is that seizures happen only in 13% of the patients and that absolutely no one of them had status epilepticus. Then regarding the hours after vaccination, we noticed that the symptoms appeared mostly in the 6 to 24-hour period after. There were patients that had symptoms as early as uh, less than one hour to those that had over 72 hours, but those were small numbers. The majority was between 6 and 24 hours after the vaccine. The other important thing that this figure shows is that Several parents or caregivers uh, gave medication to prevent seizures or to treat fever. So they could have given acetaminophen, like Tylenol, to decrease this, the fever because they know fever can trigger seizures in, in, in Dravet syndrome. And some of those patients received benzodiazepines as what we call bridge medication, to make sure they would not have seizures in this period where they could be more susceptible. So then for figure two, it talks specifically about vaccine hesitancy among caregivers of patients with Dravet syndrome. What do you think are the key messages there, the key takeaways from that figure? Well, that figure shows that for those patients that had a seizure induced by a vaccine prior to COVID, so any other vaccine like MMR or something else, uh, the parents of those patients were a bit more hesitant to give COVID vaccine compared to parents of children that had other vaccines and didn't have an increase in seizures in the past. And then the part B of that figure answers the concerns that those parents had. And we see that 78% of caregivers had not vaccinated because they were concerned about the risk of increased seizures or status epilepticus. 32% thought that the vaccine was not necessary. 45% thought that the vaccine was not safe. And 30% had other reasons that were more diverse. What do you see as the implications of your findings? If you're looking at how physicians, including neurologists and epileptologists, might incorporate their findings to their practice, what would you say are the implications for them? Yeah, our findings are very encouraging in that they show that the vaccine is safe for patients that have Dravet syndrome. Even though a small proportion of them had an increase in their baseline seizures, none of them went into status epileptic. So that's very, very encouraging. The clinicians can also 
look at the strategies used by caregivers of our patients, which were recommended by their specialists in the sense of preventative antipyretic medications or bridge medications in the sense of preventative benzodiazepines. So the idea is to prevent the seizures during this phase where the patient is more susceptible after the vaccine. What additional research do you believe is needed in this area? What else would you like to see examined? So regarding COVID and Dravet syndrome, I think we now need to understand the responses of younger patients. So at the time we did this research, the vaccine was available only to those 12 years and older. So now we need to understand if the response of younger patients is similar to what we've seen with the older population. Hello, and welcome back to Physicians Weekly. We are joined again by our regular contributor, Dr. Medlaw, a board-certified radiologist and medical malpractice attorney. Dr. Medlaw, thank you for being with us. Great to be here. When most doctors hear the term captain of the ship in medical malpractice cases, they think that it means that because of their rank, that they are responsible for everything that goes on during a procedure. Is that correct? No, uh, captain of the ship is actually one of the most misunderstood terms in medical malpractice law. So what does it actually mean? It refers to a situation in which the operating doctor becomes responsible for the negligent acts of operating room or delivery room staff who are not their own employees. How does that happen? Uh, the situation arises when the doctor is in the position to discover and prevent the negligence by the employee through the doctor's own ordinary care. So that prevention aspect is the linchpin. Can you explain that? Sure. The, the legal doctrine in play is called the borrowed servant. What this means is that you have enough control over someone who actually isn't your employee that it sort of temporarily detaches them from their actual employer and makes it as though they were working for you. So captain of the ship rests on the operating doctor's ability to actually exercise real life control over the work being done by a hospital employee in a way that's significant enough to temporarily detach that employee from the hospital's control and instead make them the borrowed servant of the doctor. Now, liability for that, and I'm doing air quotes, employee, can then attach to the operating doctor, just as it would if they'd brought in their own staff member from their own personal office. Where did this approach start? The main case that this term is traced to is a case from 1949 in Pennsylvania uh, called McConnell v. Williams. What happened in that case? It was a case about a delivery and a newborn was damaged by an intern's malpractice. But the intern, being an intern, was basically penniless. And back then, hospitals were shielded by charity laws. So there was no way to reach the facility that employed the intern. So basically, there, there were just no pockets available. However, the obstetrician testified that he had complete control of the delivery room and everyone in it, and that the intern was bound to carry out his orders. So the court therefore found that for that period, the obstetrician had become the master of the intern. And so 
was responsible for what that intern did. The court wrote that it can be readily understood that in the course of an operation in the operating room of a hospital, and until the surgeon leaves that room at the conclusion of the operation, he is in the same complete charge of those who are present and assisting him as the captain of a ship over all on board. And that such supreme control is indeed essential in view of the high degree of protection to which an anesthetized unconscious patient is entitled. Captaincy is therefore nothing like the common belief that the operating doctor's mere presence is enough. The actual issue is the captaincy to control the events, right? Exactly, and that is actually a high standard to meet. Can you give examples? Sure. Just giving instructions to a staff member or having the right to supervise them doesn't create liability for the operating doctor. So asking for an instrument from a nurse or telling a tech to start a line or having an orderly run a biopsy sample to the path lab doesn't make the operating doctor a captain because those tasks are what the hospital already has the employee there to do. They don't require the doctor stepping in in a way that makes that staff member more their employee than the hospital's. So that sounds like it goes beyond basic vicarious liability. Uh, Exactly. With basic vicarious liability, the employment relationship is enough for the employer to be liable for what their employee does. But under captain of the ship, there must be a present hands-on aspect that produces a shift to actual control. So that probably enters into a defense against this. Well, that's exactly what a doctor would defend against a captaincy claim. Uh, They'd want to show that their role was nothing like the obstetrician in the McConnell case, who was all strutting to the court about how important he was. The determination of whether it went that far would depend on the facts of the individual case, hospital policies, hospital bylaws, the terms of the privileges agreement that the doctor is under, the operating room or delivery room protocols for employees, and then, with apologies to Hamilton, what was actually said and done in the room where it happened. Is captain of the ship still used much? It's actually kind of a zombie doctrine now. The fact that it was created for, you know, that hospitals were immune uh, from suit over what their employees did or that operating doctors had absolute control, those are long gone. Uh, So claiming a borrowed servant is rarely going to fit modern facts. Does it persist at all? What courts are looking at now is the fact that operating doctors are under non-delegable duties to their uniquely vulnerable patients, people who are under anesthesia. And so they're finding that evidence that the doctor could have personally intervened to correct conduct by members of the team can be considered by the jury. So this is not vicarious liability. It is direct and personal to the doctor. Exactly. A captain of the ship found this quasi-employment relationship, but this is about what a doctor can themselves do to step in and stop a mistake. How would that play out in a case? Uh, There's a good example from a California case, uh, Fields v. Yusuf, uh, from 2006. So the surgeon in that case did a lower extremity arterial bypass graft. Uh, Two sponge counts were done at the end of the procedure. Both were correct. The next day, though, the surgeon did a second procedure on the same patient. This time only one count was done, and the surgeon was told that it was fine. Uh, 
The nursing staff didn't spontaneously do another count. The surgeon didn't tell them to do so. However, that one count was actually not correct, and the sponge had actually been left in. There were pretty horrible subsequent complications, and the patient eventually needed an amputation. The hospital settled, and the surgeon didn't. The case went to trial against the surgeon. The jury found for the surgeon, and the plaintiff appealed. The appellate court relied on expert testimony that the doctor and the OR nurses shared a joint responsibility for ensuring a correct sponge count, and it determined that the jury should have been charged on the captain of the ship doctrine. What the appellate court found was that the surgeon's duty to remove all sponges and foreign objects from the patient is non-delegable because of what it called a special relationship that exists between the patient, who's particularly vulnerable because they're unconscious and under total control of the operating team, and the surgeon during the operation. That sounds a lot like the reasoning in the older case. Well, it was. However, there was then a more modern shift in the rest of the court's reasoning. It held that although the nursing staff had protocols for doing sponge counts, the surgeon couldn't delegate his duty to adequately verify that there are no sponges still in his patient to the nurses. He was responsible for ensuring that the nurses did the count in a way that was adequate to enable him to discharge his own duty to the patient to remove all the sponges before closing. So instead of being a strutting captain giving orders, the doctor is expected to act responsibly to satisfy his own fiduciary obligations to the patient. So what the court held was that, and this is a quote, the question to be answered by the jury on retrial is not whether Dr. Yusuf had control over how the sponge count was conducted, but whether he had the authority to order the sponge count to be made under his supervision during the operation. So in other words, a failure to be a captain when the doctor needed to be one and actually could be one would be the predicate for this liability. Does this extend to other specialists, specifically the anesthesiologist or the anesthetist? Uh, No, because they're independent specialists and the operating doctor does not have the power to control them. Uh, However, uh, actually, cases about anesthesia mishaps are usually what get doctors confused about captain of the ship. What do you mean by that? Well, the operating doctor will uh, get named in the case and then say, wait a minute, this is not about the surgery, this is about the anesthesia, and will try to get summary judgment, letting them out of the case. And then they'll lose that motion. And then they'll attribute that to being blamed under captain of the ship for what the anesthesiologist or the anesthetist did. However, what they're actually being kept in the case about is because of the allegation that they themselves were also negligent, such as by failing to notice that the patient was not getting enough oxygen. So if the operating doctor failed as a captain, how does that affect the liability of other staff in the case? It doesn't exonerate them. Their negligence, they still have to answer for it. Uh, They remain liable for what they did or failed to do under their own obligations to the patient. And they can't claim, well, the doctor should have told me to do more as a defense. So in an area of law that is evolving, what is the takeaway? 
Uh, Captain of the ship was uh, draped in this Horatio Hornblower image, but it was always grounded in the core issue of a doctor being responsible to do what is needed for their patient if they can. And so we know this, as we always do, as being reasonable under the circumstances. If an operating doctor has the ability to give orders to influence staff conduct or to get more information from staff that, you know, that they need to treat the patient, and that conduct or information is required for safe patient care, then it's reasonable to expect that the doctor will give those orders. And it's fair to hold them liable if they don't do so. Captain of the ship as a named doctrine, well, it's only applied to operating doctors, but this general principle applies to all doctors. So whether or not you're in a jurisdiction that still applies captain of the ship, or even if you don't do procedures, uh, remember that you will still be expected to be what we call the last clear chance to avert an error by the staff. If you actually have the power to step in, then you should do so. Thank you again, Dr. Medlaw, for joining us. Well, thanks for the chance to talk about this important topic. That's all the time we have for today's podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Stay safe and stay healthy. Physicians Weekly is produced in collaboration with Medicom Medical Publishers and Physicians Weekly. 